the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. Today we're going to be talking about how safe are we. And... Um, <laughs> Ironically enough, um, this comes at a day when the headlines are uh, Iran papers are for an atomic bomb. Apparently, Iran has been buying some papers on the black market, and somebody finally figured out that these papers were for an atomic bomb. I'm glad they figured it. Finally, figured it out. My guest today is going to talk about uh, issues of, in general, how safe are we? He's the president of Aegis. Assessments. His name is Richard Renke, and he's going to take you behind the scenes of Homeland Security and answer the question, are we really pre- prepared? What is our government not telling us? Uh, are we prepared for natural disasters, weapons of mass destruction? We're going to find out today whether there is anyone, anyone at all, minding the store. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you for having me on. Well, what do you think? Let's just start with the news. Um, what do you think about that, Iran papers? Well, you know, w- one of the problems with any kind of technology, whether it's the technology to make an atomic bomb or the uh, technology to create designer viruses, um, it, that technology can be applied to create a designer virus so that you can study viruses and create an uh, antidote for them or it can be used to create a designer virus to kill lots of people. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the, the nuclear age, we've been in it for a long time, and uh, during the Cold War, we managed to keep the genie in the bottle, as it were. But unfortunately, since the breakup of the old Soviet Union, before there were any concerns about the, um, you know, what they uh, like to call the, the Muslim nuke, uh, we had quite a problem over in the Soviet republics, the former Soviet republics, because as that society broke down, the controls on their nuclear weapons uh, degraded. So did their security and so did their accountability. So uh, even even prior to 9-11, there were a lot of concerns raised in the Congress about how are we going to control the um, some... Russian general, for example, deciding he's going to sell uh, some nuclear warheads on the black market. And and one of the issues was the the suitcase nuke, the so-called suitcase nuke, which is a small nuclear uh, device that could be transported in an automobile or in a van. That's scary. Yes, and isn't it ironic that um, after our concerns were all about Russia and the Cold War and uh, that they were our enemy, the only enemy or the main enemy we were watching out for, um, that, in fact, the destruction of the country, of that country, would then really bring about um, a, a greater risk, in a sense, to us. And, and it's, it is kind of funny, because some of the old Cold Warriors look back on the good old days, yeah. where geopolitics was 
black and white. It was America v. Russia and a little bit of China thrown in. That, that was about it. It was the Western powers versus communism, and communism was looked at as this monolithic block, and it didn't matter what uh, country you were talking about. If they were a communist, they were commies, and, and we looked at them all as one uh, you know, cohesive unit. And of course, history has shown us that that's really not true at all. So, okay, here's the big question. <laughs> How safe are we? Well, I think we are safer than we were pre-9-11, but we don't feel safer, and that's because a lot of the deficiencies we have in our national security uh, grid have been uh, shown by the, uh, you know, by 9-11, by even back Oklahoma City, um, you know, the Hurricane Katrina, the, the hurricanes, which uh, we're in a new hurricane cycle now, the National Weather Service predicts probably for the next 10 years we're going to have a, a whole state of mm. very, um, you know, significant hurricanes. And so um, we don't feel safer, but I think that we have uh, increased our ability to respond to the disasters, although Hurricane Katrina was, um, uh, you know, uh, it it showed that when the real world meets planning, sometimes the uh, planning doesn't hold up. Yes. Um, You know, well, when you say we, we don't feel safer, but we are safer, I mean, I, yes, I guess we are safer than before 9-11 because there's been more attention um, paid to some of these deficiencies and there's been more money thrown at it. But um, I, I guess the thing is that we don't feel safer because that exposed the fact that we were living in a false sense of security. Absolutely. And, and you asked me, are we safe or not? You didn't ask me, are we safe? <laughs> That's okay. true. Those, those are two diff- very different questions. Um, you know, when when we, we were just talking about um, nuclear security, I'm sure you recall a few years ago, ABC News smuggled a couple devices into the ports that had a nuclear signature, and that demonstrated w- one of the big problems is you don't need to create a you know a fission device and and create an actual atomic explosion to uh, have tremendous damage by the use of a, say, a, they call a, a, a dirty bomb, a radiological dispersal device, an RDD. Uh, if you put a uh, conventional explosive and you packed around it uh, radioactive waste that you could get from uh, medical, from hospitals, from some industrial sources, and you took that in, say, to the, the port of Los Angeles in San Pedro, and that exploded you'd shut down not only that port, but most of the ports around the country for days. Okay, so why isn't that happening? Well, that's that's been a big fear, and there's been a lot of, uh, you know, the government is somewhat maligned from time to time because some of the things they do don't make a lot of sense. For example, I'm not a big fan of the uh, color-coded alert system. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do when the alert mm-hmm. goes from yellow to orange. But some of the things that they've done have been very effective, and I think it's, uh, you know, the, the proof of the pudding, as they say, is in the eating, and we have not had a major terrorist mm-hmm. attack in this country since 9-11, and that hasn't been by accident. There have been plans for, there was a, a group up in Detroit that was uh, arrested and broken up where there was a plan to bring in a, a dirty bomb. So it's not that people aren't thinking about those types of things. Um, one of the other areas, if you stay on the topic of nuclear security, is the nuclear power plants. And um, after 9-11, 
the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission changed some of the rules and um, did some things that were just common sense. They don't let a truck drive up next to a, a nuclear facility anymore. They stop it half a mile away to see who's in it and you know find out mm-hmm. what the person's doing. But they um, they had a uh, they have a uh, some teams of retired uh, Navy SEALs and Army Rangers that actually go to different power plants and do a simulated terrorist attack. Mm. The problem with that is when they started doing it, these guys are really good, and they'd sneak into the facility and plant their simulated bombs and then <laughs> go have a beer, and there'd be a simulated disaster. So the um, uh, rules were changed, the rules of engagement, to try to make it easier for the security services at the nuclear plants to win these engagements. <laughs> and it's gotten a little bit ridiculous. For example, one of the things they do is they have, uh, I don't know if you have children, but they have um, laser tag where you shoot a little laser gun yeah. and the guy wears a vest and it's got a photoreceptor on it, so if you shoot the light, he's right. shot. Well, they'll tell the security guards, look, from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, you can't carry your gun. You have to wear this this vest and carry this laser gun. Well, I... And what's the point of it? Well, the guy figures out, gee, I guess we're going to have our simulated attack that day, uh, at uh-huh, that time. Uh-huh. So, um, and then they have what they, you know, they the simulation, of course, then really breaks down because these guys are running around like Wyatt Earp. Because <laughs> who cares if you get shot? And some of them cheat. They put a little piece of black tape over the photoreceptor and then you, you can't <laughs> die. And, I mean, there's... It sounds like a bunch of kids just playing around. And this is well, you know, we're we're in the computer age now, and, and some of the simulations we do, uh, and I'll give you an example. It was you know widely discussed in the media was Hurricane Pam. Hurricane Pam was a, a simulation of a, a hurricane that would have struck the Gulf Coast in Louisiana, and they did it in two thousand and four. Hmm. And after they they got all those different agencies together, and they figured out, gee, you know, we're really ready. We are absolutely ready. If a big hurricane hits, everybody knows what to do, and we have all the manpower in place. And, and of course, when when the hurricane hit, the reality didn't track with the theory because you had a breakdown in communication between the state, the federal, the local level. Um, You know, in our system of government, we don't have really centralized authority. You have a whole bunch of different stakeholders. You have checks and balances. You have state authorities county authorities, city authorities, federal authorities, different agencies, and they did not coordinate well, and they didn't really have um, the incident management system down where they knew who was responsible for what, who was supposed to be doing what, and who would report to whom. And as but, if that's say, what the, but if that was what the simulated um, Hurricane Pam was, why did it work there and then the people didn't know who to report to? Well, because there, there's a big difference between getting a group of people at a, a certain level who run these simulations and getting the bus driver who mm. was supposed to go out and get in the bus and drive it out of the, the low-lying parking lot up to higher ground mm. when the floodwaters came. I mean, part of the problem is there are certain things that, that uh, it's going to be difficult to respond to, a uh, terrorist attack, for example, because you don't know what the nature of it is or where it's going to happen. There are other things that happen that are really a part of Homeland Security that we should be better prepared for. We have hurricanes and earthquakes and wildfires and blizzards every year. Mm-hmm. And we should be a lot better prepared in terms of coordinating our response 
because I can tell you next year there's going to be more hurricanes and there's going to be tornadoes and there's going to be wildfires and there's really no excuse for not learning uh, the lessons about getting better communication systems in place, getting a, an incident command system in place where all the different agencies know who they're supposed to report to. I mean, those are the types of things that we have to do a lot better at. Yes, and in a sense, and, and I'd like to talk to you more about, uh, we're going to be taking a break now, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about Hurricane Katrina, but certainly in a sense, um, it was as much of a tragedy as it was. It was uh, also a good lesson to to let people know that we weren't as prepared for the real thing as they thought, because uh, just like 9-11, um, also an incredible, I mean, it's very sad that we need these tragedies to get our act together, but... At least we're learning things from that. My guest is Richard Renke. He is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Aegis Assessments, and we're talking today about how safe are we. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is VoiceAmerica.com. Depend on it. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadilocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second I hope it has a bathroom cried the third for only his brains were smaller than his bladder but Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely so the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road and the moral of the story is to use energy wisely log on to energyhog.org or waste not hog not this public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council if you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is Given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. Continuing to be the authority in Internet Talk Radio, you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Take some time to 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Richard Renke. He's the Chief Operating Officer and President of Aegis Assessments, and I'll have you tell us, Richard, a little bit more about what that what that company does. Um, but we were talking before the break about Hurricane Katrina, and, you know, it's been sort of a uh, – everybody's been blaming everybody else for what went wrong. What is your uh, analysis of it? My analysis is the real world intruded. I mean, um, you know, part of the problem is that we don't, there, there are a lot of tests and training regimens that have been put in place in the last five years, but I don't think there's enough. There's a series of tests called the top-off test, which stands for top officials, and what they do is they simulate all kinds of different disasters that could happen. They simulate uh, a bomb, a dirty bomb, they simulate uh, a plague, you know, intentionally let loose in a in a metropolitan area. Um, just a, a wide range of things that people would have to respond to, and um, you know, uh, those types of tests are invaluable to have actual police and firemen and other first responders show up at the scene with a bunch of different agencies in a multi-jurisdictional emergency and get a little hands-on experience in how they would deal. Um, with setting up a, a command structure, a command post, a chain of command in an actual emergency. And I think in Hurricane Katrina what happened is um, there was a real breakdown in what they call the incident command management system, which is something that the federal government developed actually from out of California because of the wildfires in the 70s. There were a lot of different agencies that used to respond, state, federal, local, None of them could communicate, and when they, even if they could communicate, they didn't have a, a way to um, coordinate their response because no one knew who was in charge. So they've come up with a very detailed uh, plan as to who's in charge in different emergencies. The problem is there hasn't been enough training throughout the different levels of government so that that's implemented smoothly when there is a real emergency. Okay, but so, I mean, is you're not seeing any one particular department or the governor, the mayor, the head of FEMA? Well, no, it's, 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 it's very easy to, you know, to pick a side and say it's the other guy. But, I mean, it's a system, and the system broke down. And part of the problem was that, um, and, and there's been a lot of postmortems. I mean, the, the federal government's saying, look, the governor really didn't declare a state of emergency and ask for federal troops until a few days into this. The governor's saying, well, you know, the mayor should have really been the guy who was responsible for the on-the-scene evacuation, and he should have called us up and said, gee, this is turning into a real nightmare. We need help faster than he did. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a ton of finger-pointing. Mm -hmm. the, the people, it, what you can see is that when the system finally gets rolling, when they bring in the, the National Guard, when they bring in the Coast Guard, when and, and FEMA was very much maligned, um, you know, FEMA had a fantastic reputation in the um, the 90s under James Lee Witt. Um, he was uh, President Clinton's um, uh, head of FEMA, and they elevated uh, that to a cabinet-level position uh, under President Clinton. And FEMA just was an outstanding organization. And then when he left, the um, uh, sort of the dig at the Bush administration was instead of filling the top echelons of FEMA with people that had an emergency operations background, they filled it with political patronage, mm -hmm. people that really didn't have a good grasp of what you do when there's hmm. a large-scale emergency. So, um, you know, it's... Yes, wasn't it that um, uh, the head of FEMA had been, 
had taken care of racehorses or something? What was the Yes, that, that was pretty much exactly it. It was an organization <laughs> for horse races and horse racing and uh, thoroughbreds. And, you, know, the, you know, it's unfortunate that he got so much of the heat personally. I mean, I saw this gentleman being interviewed and everybody was raking him over the coals mm. as if he personally was the person that was responsible mm. for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the organ- FEMA organization... The thing that's you know that's somewhat disconcerting to people in the emergency management area is that the FEMA organization was built over a long period of time and has really done a tremendous job over the last you know fifteen years and it got a lot of hits. Um, part of the problem I think is that FEMA now has been folded into the Department of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. and I think that it should be an independent agency. It, it performed a stellar role in the 90s as an independent agency, and, and, and I think that's what it should go back to. Well, um, it, it was rather frustrating, certainly, as an outsider looking, listening to the radio reports of how the storm was getting close, Hurricane Katrina was getting closer and closer, and yet they seemed to be paralyzed. You know, they, the people weren't leaving um, they weren't organizing. I mean, of course, a lot of the people were poor, and, and they either didn't have cars or they really didn't have the wherewithal to, to make a trip anywhere. They didn't know where to go. But certainly, if in all those days, I mean, it, it wasn't like a dirty bomb or it wasn't like um, a sudden wildfire. It, this was something where they had days to prepare. That was the thing that was so tragic about it. You're absolutely right. There's a satellite out in space. And the satellite's watching the storm, and you can get on the Internet, and you can see almost real-time, gee, there it comes. Boy, it's sure big. Yeah. yeah. You know, the part of the problem, too, is when, again, the real world intrudes, you have a, a, a big metropolitan area where you have, as you pointed out, poor people. You have homeless people. You have old people that are institutionalized. You have people in hospitals. I mean, there's, there's a... a a whole range of people that really aren't in a position to handle that type of emergency themselves without assistance, and um, you know it's it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. But I think most most people in the United States, most ordinary citizens, feel, gee, if I was the mayor, or if I was the governor, or if I were the president, I would have handled this a lot differently. I would have right. called in the National Guard, said, you you know, you go door to door and everybody's leaving. I'm, you're right. not asking, I'm telling. You're going. Get in that truck. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, and, and we certainly should learn the, the lessons of a disaster like this, we just need as a society to be a lot better prepared for these type of, of natural disasters that occur with some regularity. And we also need to... to um, address some areas in our national security that people don't think of right off the bat as being something that's really related to homeland security, but which is. You know, natural disaster preparation is one thing. Uh, securing our borders is a really important thing mm-hmm. that's, you know, we've been arguing about for the last 20 years. But imagine trying to have security. If, if you go to a, a rock concert, they have security. You don't get in without a ticket. They control who goes in and out. Mm-hmm. We don't do that here. <laughs> I mean, what what kind of real security can you have when you have borders that are so porous that literally millions of people come across our borders unaccounted for? 
Yes, I, I know. It is astounding that, I mean, we've been talking about this as a major issue for what? The last ten years? Five years, certainly? I mean, you know, in, in terms of it being really, almost certainly since 9-11, but even before then. And why is it that it's still happening? There was a, just a tunnel um, discovered just a few days ago, right? It, well, it's, it's I, I don't want to say it's a lack of being serious, but it's certainly a lack of uh, making it a priority. I mean, part of the problem, and I lived for 25 years in Los Angeles, and, and your show's out of Malibu, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I lived for 25 years in L.A., and I can tell you that, you know, the um, there was a there was a movie a few years ago called A Day Without a Mexican, and it was like, what would happen if all of the, you know, Mexican immigrants just went home one day? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Southern California particularly would be paralyzed. Uh, there's most of the people that come across the border illegally to get into the United States, good, hardworking people that come across the border to work and send money home. You know, the vast, vast majority. Unfortunately, uh, just people being people, there's a small percentage that come across the border that are criminals, that come across the border to, to prey on Americans. And when you're talking about a couple million people coming across, uh, you don't need a big percentage to make it a lot of people. Yes. So... Um, I just think that the because the borders, the northern border is the same way. I mean, we don't get the same kind of influx of people, but it's it's this huge border that is basically unprotected and mostly unregulated, and it will cost a lot of money and a lot of technology and a lot of people power to really secure our borders. It's an incredibly daunting task. Well, you know, but... I mean, now that we do need to face terrorism, I mean, it's not just a matter of, of economics or of um, bad, you know, the, the bad eggs, uh, the bad apples who spoil the lot coming across the border. It's the fact that it makes it so absurd at airports, for example, um, where security is, is annoying <laughs> at best. And I mean, not that it's not necessary, but I mean, you know, certainly everybody is scrutinized, and it makes it ridiculous because if if people can come across the borders at other places without having to go through that, then which one, where is the terrorist going to come from? Of course, of course. Here, here's the here's the problem as I see it. The problem is that we treat border security as almost as a game of gotcha on the border. <laughs> if you can get across the border, nobody's going to check you all that much. And uh, I know from personal experience in Southern California, one, one of the things that happened in the 70s and the 80s is that the local police departments and sheriff's department stopped enforcing um, any kind of immigration laws because there were just so many people, if they stopped, you know, tw- you know, 20, 30, 40 people, there'd be a large percentage of those that would be illegal aliens, and they would take them to the jail. They didn't have enough time, resources, or space. Mm-hmm. They were, in effect, doing the federal government's, you know, border patrol work. So they stopped doing that. Yes, yeah, so well, that's unfortunate, and certainly it is a place where near, where, where there needs to be more uh, attention paid and... and work done um, well, well there's so much to talk about because you know obviously another issue is whether it's at the airports or at the borders you're entrusting people um, a larger number of people to uh, 
have the role that's, that's very vital to our security? And, and what kind of checks do we do those people go through? I, I don't think sufficient ones. You know, the more people that you need to be the, the guards, um, it just makes it harder to make sure that all of them are trustworthy. Absolutely. Okay, we're talking today with my guest, Richard Renke. He is the Chief Operating Officer and President of Aegis Assessments. We're talking today about how safe are we, and um, we're, we're uncovering holes <laughs> that need to be filled. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Connecting your world. The Internet's number one talk and information station. VoiceAmerica.com Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for some spiritual enlightenment? If the answer is yes, then you need to join Jeffrey Gitterman every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time here on Voice America. Spiritual Enlightenment is a show that will discuss a wide variety of spiritual subjects and how your beliefs and those of others affect your daily life. Learn about yourself. Listen to Spiritual Enlightenment with Jeffrey Gitterman. You'll be glad you did. Spiritual Enlightenment every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, Lake Bell from Surface joins us to tell us about the show, and TD-0013, our resident stormtrooper, joins us in studio to help us talk about the sci-fi that's happened this week. That's this week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. A significant portion of your federal budget is spent on national security, economic aid, international development, and the war in Iraq. But what do you receive in return for that investment? That question and many more will be answered when you join Diane Cromer for World Views and Local Perspectives every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Diane will talk with you about a range of international issues and inform you on how and why these issues have a direct impact on the lives of all Americans. So tune in every Thursday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for World Views and Local Perspectives with Diane Cromer, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. The world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Richard Renke. He is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Aegis Assessments. He's a specialist in uh, security of all types. 
and uh, he's also the author of a special report on communications for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, before the break, we were talking about this, the necessity of having more people um, be security agents of one sort or another, whether it's borders or airports or, you know, as we become more conscious of needing more security. And then there's the question of how, how the, well they are screened and how much we can trust the people who are guarding the hen house. And that made me think about how um, really, and of course I've been thinking about this now for quite a while as I'm writing a book about coping with terrorism, uh, Dreams Interrupted, um, how much denial the people, all of us in the United States are in. And that very much uh, is related to what we're talking about today because because just like with Hurricane Katrina, it's not just about terrorism, actually, but just like even with Hurricane Katrina, I mean, we live in, in sort of this um, glass bubble where we uh, it's, it's a whole paradox because on the one hand, we're terrified of being, um, you know, carjacked um, or of, well, now of bird flu. I mean, of the various... Um, uh, things that seem scary at the moment, and then we go into a state of denial. That they sort of pass. <laughs> We're also at the same time thinking that nothing can touch us. We're invulnerable. And, um, and I think that that's part of the problem for why people, even though they see the hurricane is coming or they see after 9-11 and, and you know, there are, there's something in the news every single day about that, that increases the worry um, or should increase the worry in regard today. I was just talking earlier about Iran, um, now finding out that for sure the papers that they were buying had to do with building an atomic bomb. We kind of hear this on one level, and yet um, our mind goes into denial as a way of protecting us from the terrors that are out there. And that's fine um, to some extent as long as we're prepared and can deal with these whatever the current um, tragedy is, when it really comes. Well, you raise a, a very interesting point about the psychology of terrorism, not just uh, in regard to how terrorists are recruited or what their mindset is, but also, for example, the Western public, the American public. How does it perceive terrorism? And, and it's kind of a paradox. People take a lot of personal responsibility in our society for their own safety. They... Um, they buy an automobile that has airbags and the latest safety features. Mm. They, uh, you know, take vitamins. They watch their cholesterol. Mm. If you're watching television, you'd think, my goodness, you know, this this must be a whole society of Jack Lanes. Everybody's so concerned with their health <laughs> and their well-being. But on the other hand, people tend to give up their own personal sphere of responsibility when it's something like a, a hurricane or a terrorist act. There there's, seems to be this mindset that, Gee, this is this is as arbitrary as lightning striking. There's nothing personally that I can do to be better prepared. So I'm going to give up my authority to somebody else. Somebody else is going to have to handle this for me, mm-hmm. and, and and that's really not true. I mean, things. Uh, one of the things in California, for example, where where there's earthquakes, is you know for decades they've told people, look, you know, there there could be a big Northridge type quake any time. You should have drinking water available for several days you should have flashlights and batteries and some food you should you know you should be prepared if there's this emergency to handle the the uh, the effects for at least a few days for you and your immediate family 
um, in the same way where where there's wildfires or where there's hurricanes, people need to take a little bit more personal responsibility in terms of saying, okay, do I have a plan if uh, if the father and mother are at work and the kids are at school and some disaster strikes where we can't get home, how are we going to all meet up again? Something as simple as saying we're going to have a contact person out of state who probably won't be affected by the the same emergency, a friend or a family member. And if we're all separated, that's the person we're going to call and that's how we're going to coordinate getting back together. Um, you know, part of the part of the problem with a disaster like a hurricane or a terrorist attack is, as as I just said, there seems to be this perception that it's totally beyond our control, and and that's not true. You saw over in um, Great Britain where they had the attacks on the buses, that um, and on the subway, people didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention to things that they should have been paying attention to. And if if you go to what do you mean, like what? Well, I mean, if it's a hot day and some guy gets on the the bus and he's got a backpack and a long coat and he's acting a little nervous, I'd start acting a little nervous. Um, you know, in in um, uh, Israel, they're used to watching for things that seem out of sorts or things that are potentially dangerous. A, a, a car abandoned, a, park, a car parked too close to a building or a school where there's nobody in the car. That's the kind of thing that... Uh, now, if you do it at an airport, we'll get you towed away. Mm-hmm. But th- there, there are um, a, a lot of ways that an individual person can be a little bit more aware of his surroundings, and that's that's good advice, not just in regards to terrorism, but also just in regards to street crime, which is probably a lot more likely to be the cause of a, a problem for the, the average American citizen than a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, um, in England, though, that was sort of far from their mind, and perhaps, I mean, we could say that that no country, it shouldn't be far from anybody's mind all over the world, but, you know, it it wasn't as as high, I mean, in in their minds as, well, as it might have been in New York right after 9-11. Right. You you know. And that's part of the problem. When you're facing terrorists, you're facing a guerrilla enemy that picks the time and the the location and the manner of attacking you, and it is very difficult to prepare in advance and to prevent that. It, it absolutely is, but people still can take a certain amount of personal responsibility for where they go and what they do and and how prepared they are. Yes, and and of course, any kind of security is made all the harder by people who are who are willing to die uh, to kill other people. I mean, it's not a matter of somebody with a gun or um, a knife or some kind of weapon. I mean, it, it makes it a lot more uh, difficult to to protect against when it's someone who's actually willing to drive that car into uh, a crowd and, and uh, let a bomb go off or, or just have... You know, have the explode, do whatever it takes. Actually, as long as, including putting their own life um, in jeopardy and, and knowing that they are likely to kill themselves. Well, we were speaking a little bit off the air about a show that was on uh, on television last night about suicide bombers in, in Palestine, and they showed a 23 year old uh, Palestinian man who was married and had children, and he was recruited to be a suicide bomber. And they packed a jeep full of explosives, and he was supposed to drive the jeep into a bus full of Israeli tourists. And 
the bus driver saw this guy trying to cut across a field and figured out, you know, none of this looks good. The bus mm. driver hit the gas, outran the Jeep. Mm. So the guy in the Jeep decides, well, I'm I'm here to kill myself. I'm going to hit something. So he turns around and he um, runs into another Jeep that's uh, had some Israeli security forces in it. And there was this tremendous explosion, and then the the family celebrated. Gee, this guy's a martyr now, and he's mm. brought great honor on our family. And a year to the day of his death, they had another big party, and um, you know they had the little kids parading around with the bandanas on mm. and holding, you know, AK-47s and and you know giving the salute and talking about how when they grow up, that's what they want to do. They want to be a suicide bomber, and it's a whole you know cult of death. And when when the United States in World War II, when the kamikaze attacks first took place, and I believe the first ones were in uh, out just around the Philippines, the, the uh, American servicemen were just totally shocked that not one or two people would kill themselves, but whole platoons of people on orders would just kill themselves. And it was the... the Armed forces hushed up the news for a considerable amount of time because they mm. knew it would be devastating to U.S. morale, and it, it absolutely is. How do you, when when we were dealing with the Soviet Union, there was the perception that you know the the leaders of the Soviet Union really didn't want a nuclear bomb dropped on Moscow, and when you're dealing with some of the fanatical elements today, you don't get that same idea. Mm. The idea you get is, you know what, maybe that would be good. Yes, yes, and 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 yes, and that is what makes it, of course, a lot more terrifying. But um, because where their aims, where they feel that even if they have to die for their aims, which uh, albeit twisted, um, that they're willing to do that, and and we're not willing to do that. And uh, in fact, we're we're a culture that denies death um, in itself. But yes, it's a whole. Everything is sort of being rewritten, and it's really rather tragic because. Because, you know, when people believe that the, they're going to get 72 virgins or that um, life is going to be, or existence is going to be so much better after they die and therefore they're willing to uh, give up their life here, um, you know, it, it comes from, there, there are a lot of psychological reasons for that, uh, being unhappy here. Uh, and needing to believe that, therefore, you're going to be rewarded when you die, especially if you die as a martyr. I mean, it, it, it's just really, everything has gotten really twisted for a lot of people, and, and instead the, the game plan should be to be making this life as happy and peaceful and, and uh, rewarding as possible and not just to hurry up and get over to the other side. And, and unfortunately, you're not talking about just a few people. You're talking about tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people that are, are willing to give their lives for their cause. Yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> I guess maybe one could make the uh, argument that if it was a, well, I don't know that one could find a good enough cause to do that because obviously, uh, obviously the whole scheme is wrong. I mean, there's, well, to them, we'll, see, unfortunately, to them it is a good cause. Yes, right. And so but, what we need to do is we need to to uh, deal with terrorism not just on a political basis but on a social basis. Exactly, a psychological basis. We need mass psychotherapy for the, <laughs> for the, psychotherapy for the masses to uh, get people to understand why they really want to do this. 
Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of saying this uh, half sarcastically, but I think that that's really the truth. Um, <laughs> well, we have to take this break. I know we could keep talking through it, but we do have to take this break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today, bringing up all these interesting points, is Richard Renke. He is the President, Chief Operating Officer of Aegis Assessments. So stay tuned. Information you need, when you need it. VoiceAmerica.com Join Laura Mills Alcott on Much Ado About Books for lively interviews with romance, mystery, mainstream, and nonfiction authors. Ranging from the New York Times best-selling authors you know and love to new authors you won't want to miss. Keep up to date with the latest releases and book news. Get book recommendations from our guest reviewers and read our book club selections. Our special topic shows feature a wide variety of experts. And don't miss our surprise guest feature. All this and more on Laura Mills Alcott's Much Ado About Books, Book Talk Radio. Every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on Voice America. West Coast Business Review and host Andy Campbell presents Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific Time on VoiceAmericaRadio.com. Visit our website at www.WestCoastBusinessReview.com. West Coast Business Reviews, show me the business, connecting you to the business world. World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the Voice America channel Fridays at 2 p.m. Continuing to be the authority in internet talk radio, you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll free at 1 888 335 5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're talking today about how safe are we, and we're <laughs> expanding that to talking about the uh, some of the problems of the world. We were talking off air just now about uh, the, another topic in the news about uh, apparently the United States <laughs> having to decide as if I, I didn't even know that this was actually happening. Um, I mean, I, I didn't think that the United States was supporting Hamas, but apparently it has been, and we're now now first deciding whether that's a good thing to do. I mean, what happened to the policy about not supporting terrorists? Why, how did Hamas get beyond that? Well, uh, a big part of the problem that, that we've had over the last 20, 30, 40 years even is the United States has supported a lot of regimes that have provided us uh, with... Uh, uh, geopolitical or economic benefits. A, a great example is the, the Saudis. But um, what the Saudis have done for a long time is they've stoked a lot of very virulent anti-Western sentiment 
among their population so that the population isn't thinking, gee, the, the royal family are a bunch of bad guys, we should overthrow them. They're thinking, boy, the West is terrible and, you know, death to America. Mm. The, the um, Wahhabism is, is the, uh, the kind of the virulent um, uh, sect that uh, uh, breeds a lot of uh, Muslim extremists. And as, as a lot of people knew right after 9-11 but kind of forgot, most of the, uh, the hijackers were Saudi um, yeah, you know we've we've made in a lot of ways a, a deal with the devil, where we've supported different regimes that gave us what we wanted, and the uh, the underlying population was very unhappy about it and very anti-Western. I mean, everyone remembers the the revolution in in Iran and the uh, the hostage crisis there, but that 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 is not a unique situation. We've done that quite a bit over the course of the last several decades, and I, I think now we have more of a sense that you can't um, deal with the problem of terrorism just militarily killing all the terrorists. You've, you've got to address it on the political uh, stage and also the social stage. What is the breeding ground for these people? Why are they so ha- unhappy? Why are they so willing to die to lash out at, um, at Western culture? And what's it going to take to bring them some of the benefits of our culture without trying to impose our entire culture on them? Yes, it, it really. Uh, it's. I, I think you know you were saying the genie is out of the bottle in terms of atomic warfare. The genie is out of the bottle in terms of um, uh, recognizing that there are these, all of these uh, sociological and psychological. Uh, issues going on that that are causing this sort of love-hate relationship that's kind of <laughs> turning more towards hate than love lately, um, or not just lately, but I mean going on for a number of years now. Um, as far as what's happening in the countries that spawn terrorists, and I mean you know because I've talked a lot about how uh, well one thing I've talked about is how uh, the a lot has to do with our exporting violent media, violent video games and, and videos and movies and, and television shows all around the world, and that that's been causing the world, uh, in every country, violence to erupt, um, you know, not just in, in countries that grow terrorists. Uh, but it also has to do with, with this sort of arrogance and materialism and uh, lack of our, the United States, being tuned into what really is important, um, and people seeing that, and on the one hand, you know, yeah, wearing baseball caps uh, and jeans, but on the and eating McDonald's, but on the other hand, you know, hating us for our uh, sort of lauding over our our uh, materialistic pursuits. And I, I think that the time really has come or is overdue for us to get back to um, what's really important in this country, you know. And I mean, because there are some things about that, that are that are said that are actually true. We are much too much involved in in materialistic goods, thinking that if we have a new car or if we have a big house or um, that that's going to make us happy, that that's what we should be doing in our lifetime when really what we should be doing is learning how to love one another and give to one another and be warm-hearted to one another. And it doesn't really, the material things don't really matter and they wouldn't matter if we were warm-hearted towards each other because we'd be 
feeling so rich from that. Well, I think you hit it on the head when you talk about that the rest of the world has a love-hate relationship with the United States. I mean, one of the things everybody says is, uh, you know, if you think America's, you know, such a such a bad country, do away with all the border security and all the immigration controls for one week and see what would happen. The whole the whole, the whole world would be mm. over here. I mm. certainly think that you know what. But the other point you made is a very valid point as well. When you are pretty much the only superpower left, when you're the uh, you know New York and Washington D.C. are the new Rome, we mm. we are the superpower that everybody else is measured against. There's absolutely going to be a lot of jealousy and resentment and perceived slights um, because when you're a giant, it's hard not to throw your weight around. And even the things that you were talking about, it's the, one of the things that happens with the United States culture is um, it's almost like cultural imperialism. We don't go in and necessarily invade a country and take it over, but you know, McDonald's does, and mm-hmm. Lee Jeans does, and you know, I was I was in Germany, and uh, you know, everybody was watching Baywatch and David Hasselhoff. <laughs> He's like a god over there, and mm-hmm. I thought I was in the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Like, these people are they worship David Hasselhoff. He's on in movies, on TV. He's a singer, and I thought, you know, our culture is so pervasive throughout the world. There's absolutely got to be a backlash where people feel like we are at some level invading or stepping into the areas that 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 they want to keep for themselves. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh and feeling as though their cultures are being diminished or you know that their children are are entranced by American culture and not perhaps appreciating some of their culture as much certainly that's what happens with immigrants who come here and parents are sort of appalled <laughs> at how they're giving up uh traditions to uh be like other Americans who are here, you know, the, the more typical um, Americans who are here. Right. And, so, and some, of, some of the things that, some of the ways that American culture moves into other societies challenges the basic tenets of those societies. Yes. But the problem that we have is, in, in our belief system, and certainly in my belief system, sometimes some of those things are so important that if it challenges another culture, so be it. And, and one great example in the Middle East is women's rights. Yes. I mean, you can't you can't be an American and go over to the Middle East and uh, you know, for example, such as you, you're a doctor, you're an attorney, or you're a, a business. Person. Not an attorney, an, an expert witness. An expert witness. <laughs> I just and, pretend to be an attorney. <laughs> well, and and you go to you go to a country where women are second class citizens are treated as chattel. How do you react to that? Yes, Chris. On the other hand, there's 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 such an irony in that because some some of the people who are so against that, I mean, there still isn't really uh, equality for women in our country. Although certainly it's a lot better than in the Middle East. But it, it's interesting how people are get so on their soapbox about that, and yet um, there's still, even though women have made a great progress here, there's still certainly men are feeling threatened by that, and so it's it's just kind of funny to see it acted out. As, as people getting so outraged at oh, <laughs> what's going on there, and yet, and yet, when their job is threatened by a woman, that's terrible in the United States. That, that's that's just human nature. People <laughs> people are self interested and to different varying degrees hypocritical when necessary, when they perceive it to be necessary. Well, now um, we only have like a minute left, 
and uh, or so, and um, you know you've been so fascinating that we, I haven't actually given you a chance to uh, explain what Aegis does. So why don't you do it briefly and then give your website so people can look into it more? Thank you. We uh, we develop wireless communication systems and products for police, firefighters, and the military. Our first product is a radio bridge, and it allows uh, people with different radios on different frequencies to communicate with each other. And if any of your listeners want more information, they can look at our website. It's uh, aegiscorporate.com. And that's spelled A-E-G-I-S corporate.com. A-E-G-I-S corporate.com. My guest today is Richard Renke. You've been really fascinating. And um, we'll have to... I'll have to invite you on for the, after the next disaster, or maybe when we see one coming. Uh, I mean, well, we see we should be seeing one coming now, but I mean when we're sort of imminent, like right before um, another hurricane. Certainly. Thank you very much. Thank for, you, Doctor. I enjoyed being on your show. Please call me again. Absolutely. Very interesting insights. That you know, it, it's what's interesting is that when we start talking about security, it. It goes way beyond um, uh, you know, airport uh, surveillance machines, um, or even you know the the um, what you were talking about before the uh, the practice runs. It really goes down to the core of our existence and and trust and and what we're what we're doing on this planet and why we need to go through all of this to uh, be secure from each other and why we. Just can't get along, as Rodney King said. Well, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. It always has been. Yes. Well, we can. I guess the only thing we can do, really, all of us, uh, is to is to work each day just to make a little progress uh, towards being making peace, peace with your neighbors, peace with your family, peace with your neighbors, and then peace with people in other countries. That's all we can do is to uh, each. Do what we can to make that happen and to not stop. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.